Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. Before we get started, I want to say a quick thank you to today's sponsor, InvestNet Yodley. For anyone out there who's curious about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the financial security of many Americans, InvestNet Yodley has done a ton of research and unveiled a COVID-19 income and spending trends for American households during this unprecedented crisis. For more information, visit YodleyCovid19Trends.com to learn more. Uh, Thank you so much for the support of organizations like InvestNet, uh, because without them, I wouldn't be able to get together really smart people. like the two individuals that I have joining me here today. Today we're talking CFPB, Uh, that's right, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And for those of you who aren't as familiar, the CFPB was the consumer watchdog agency born out of the 2008 financial crisis created by the Dodd-Frank Act. We're very lucky to have with us today two professionals who served at the Bureau, First, welcome to Professor Paul Cantwell, Distinguished Professor in Residence and Director of the Rule of Law Institute at Loyola University Chicago School of Law. Uh, Most recently, prior to joining Loyola's faculty, he served as an Assistant Director of the CFPB. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you very much, Dara. It's great to join you. And second with us today is Dr. Ling Ling Ang. I love saying Dr. Ling Ling Ang, (laughs) for the record. It's one of the most fun names I have got to say uh, on the show. So Ling Ling, thank you for that. Dr. Ang is an associate director at Nira Consulting, specializing in consumer financial services, antitrust, and labor economics. Dr. Ang was one of the original economists at the CFPB and frequently served as the lead economist on bureau initiatives and rulemakings. Before joining the CFPB, Dr. Ang was also a financial economist at the FDIC. Welcome to the show, Ling Ling. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the guts of everything, I would like to point out how special it is that we have a lot of Loyola Rambler action happening on this podcast right now, and it would not be fair to my alma mater if I did not say, go Ramblers, right now on the call. Go Uh, Ramblers. Ling Ling, you got to give us one, too. You got to say, go Ramblers. You got to say, go Ramblers. All right. So everyone, needless to say, the CFPB has a very interesting history and origination story. Almost from the inception of the agency, it's been subject to challenge, both structurally, its level of authority, you name it. And, you know, some decade or so later, the Supreme Court recently has finally given us an opinion on the structure of the CFPB. And Professor Cantwell, I think it's only fitting that if you could give our listeners a quick overview of the seal of law decision um, that the United States Supreme Court issued just a few weeks ago. Sure. And as to avoid boring everyone to tears, I'll give you the, the sort of the strategic 35,000 foot uh, look at it. And then we can discuss what I think is more important, 
what are the practical consequences of that decision. Sounds like a plan. Sounds good. In essence, CELA is a California debt collection firm which brought suit uh, against the Bureau when they received a civil investigative demand, which is essentially an investigative subpoena from the Bureau. And they argued that it was unconstitutional because the agency's structure was unconstitutional. Uh, for our listeners, the, uh, the Bureau does indeed have a unique uh, leadership structure. Uh, it has a sole director, unlike many of the other agencies of its type, although it is unique in many respects. And, and the statute that frankly created uh, the, the Bureau made that director, who is pre- presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed, though not a, a cabinet member, subject to five-year terms uh, and could not be removed except for cause, uh, which usually in, in industry parlance means some sort of misconduct or, or some, something like that. So CELA objected, as have others over the years, uh, to the, uh, the Bureau's leadership structure. And the Supreme Court just a couple of weeks ago ruled that, in a very interesting decision, uh, that the leadership structure does violate the separation of powers but that the leadership structure itself is severable from many of the other claims made against the Bureau. So the Bureau can continue to operate, in essence, as it has in the past and as it is now. So the practical effect is that the director stays and the director can now be removed by the president for any reason. Thank you, Paul, for that summary. Um, I think that's really helpful. You mentioned that this isn't the first time an organization has challenged the structure of the CFPB. I think that that's sort of been, that drum's been beaten for many, many years by many, many organizations over time, right? Right. That's true. And this was just sort of the first time it got to where it was. I think, you know, mightier industry participants had sort of thrown up their hands or given up or it had died at other stages in litigation, if I'm not mistaken. That, that that is true. I think there's probably many things that brought this to a uh, to a convergence. Certainly, Secretary or uh, Director Cordray's resignation uh, when he moved on to, from the bureau to uh, run for governor of Ohio was sort of a, a, a mitigating or a precipitating factor in this. Uh, and of course, some of the activity that we've seen in the bureau from the current bureau leadership over the over the past couple of years now really compelled, I think, the court to take a look at this and decide it once and for all. Now, Lingling, Paul, were you, did you both serve under Director Cordray? Um, yes, um, and I actually started in the Elizabeth Warren era. Okay, so you you saw it from the beginning, beginning. Yeah, yeah. I um, I remember when I started, we were actually in swing space. So my first office there was shared with, I believe, 16 or 17 other people. No social distancing happening in that office. That wouldn't Not fly today, right? No. <laughs> and Paul, um, you served under more than one director, right? I did. I was there for about two years, uh, the final year of Director Cordray's uh, reign at the Bureau, if you will, and then about one year under both Director Mulvaney and just at the very beginning of Director. Actually, I didn't even serve under Director Craninger, so it was uh, it was all uh, Mr. Mulvaney's service as director for uh, at the time that I was there. So it's been my impression, although being the only one on this call who's not actually uh, served at the Bureau, it's been my impression that the direction of the Bureau and its, and its initiatives are, are certainly very driven from the top down. Would that be sort of a fair thing to say? 
Well, in, in my experience, the Cordray leadership style was very, very different from what I saw under Mr. Mulvaney and his administration. Director Cordray was very, very open to involvement from all his associate and assistant directors and others. We had principal meetings very, very frequently. We had policy meetings in, in which many or all of the senior staff was involved with Director Cordray in formulating policy, et cetera. So there was a, a very open, collaborative sort of atmosphere, uh, in my view. That changed significantly when Mr. Mulvaney arrived. But, that, you know, then again, that is the, the cost of transition. That's the way things work in government. Certainly. So transition is a great word because... Now, with the seal of law decision, those transitions, particularly at the director level, may come with perhaps some more frequency, or at least, you know, given that there may be a change in administration coming November, I certainly don't want to get into presidential election talk because for those overseas, while they may be fascinated by the U.S. political system, that is the subject of another podcast. But I think it's fair to say that there is a likelihood, there's certainly a strong possibility that there may be an administration change coming. And with that, I think it would be fair to say that there would likely be a new appointment, particularly given the flexibility that the executive branch will now have under seal of law. That, that certainly is fair. And I think that the, the opinion and the timing of the opinion are, are significant for, for that reason and for another. First of all, it's very significant that the Bureau remains live and, and well in, it, in its present form. I, I think we all agree that is a good thing for industry. That is a, a good thing, especially for consumers. In the short term, ironically, as you note, though, this may be one of those situations where the administration asks its, itself, you know, be careful what you wish for. Uh, right. Because indeed, the change they wanted was the change that they got. And as you note, uh, it may well be that there could be a, a, a change in the leadership of the Bureau if there is a change in the administration very, very soon. Ling Ling, I'm interested in your perspective. As an economist and a person who sort of lives and breathes in data and policy, I, I'm very curious as to your thoughts on sort of the, I don't want to say ping pong director situation that we may be in given, you know, the directors being chosen depending on, you know, which party is holding power in the executive branch. So what are your thoughts there? Um, so I think it could go a variety of ways. And one direction could be that things that are decided end up actually being more fact or research-based and neutral because essentially by backing things up with a fact, things are much less political and controversial. I know that my role at the Bureau, I was, and I was much, much, much less senior than Paul, was as a research economist. So it was my job and my colleagues' job to think about the data and to think about the incentives in the markets and study the markets. And so I hope that the Bureau continues doing so and basically continues to have some of the wonderful staff they have at the line level. Do you think that, do, I, 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 this question is open for anyone, but do you think that given sort of the, the flexibility, I don't even want to say the word flexibility because it's not, uh, I would say that 
volatility potentially of the director position, you're going to be able to get the same sorts of line staff, you know, those, those, those individuals who are sort of truly, you know, committed to the cause and mission of the agency, or do you think the politicization of the agency is going to discourage really qualified people from entering those roles? I, I think that it could push both ways. And I think we saw a lot of staff leave over the past few years. So that could partially be politically driven. That could also partially be workload or fit driven. But I, I do think it's a concern for retention. I've worked with some phenomenal civil servants at the Bureau who are very dedicated to doing the right thing and to doing their job well. I think before we hopped on, we were all talking about some of the great people we've interacted with at the Bureau. And I do think that if things are more volatile, that just makes the job potentially less attractive. What do you think, Paul? I agree completely with, with Ling Ling. There, there was a, we could probably call it a significant exodus uh, when, when things got rocky during the, uh, during the transitional period. I hope things have now leveled off. And it's very, very important for everyone, industry and consumers alike, that the great professionals who are there, particularly the folks who do analysis and research like Ling Ling and her colleagues did, uh, remain, because that is a very, very important part of the job. And, and one of the things that concerns me about one of the potential impacts of this decision, you use the term ping pong era, I'll use the term political football, that we, we, we hope that the, that the, the bureau directorship does, does not become that. And one of the reasons I really hope it doesn't become that is, is the Bureau's work takes a long time. Ling Ling will tell you that uh, on many of the rules on which we worked, uh, and, and I worked on one, the Military Lending Act uh, in, in the Pentagon, it took us about five years from start to finish to be able to implement these rules. And the research and analysis process takes a very, very long time. So the actions that are taken are, are, are deliberate and they are, they are considerate of the law and, and data, et cetera. And, and if we have frequent changes in the leadership of the Bureau, I'm afraid that a lot of that very, very good work gets lost, is for not, uh, et, et, et cetera. So I know one question um, a lot of my clients have posed to me in recent weeks is concern about the pending rulemaking. So, for example, uh, I work with a lot of clients in the debt collection space, and I think the Bureau received their authority over debt collection in 2013, uh, and I think that's when the you know, process of uh, writing rules and regs under the FDCPA started in earnest. That was seven years ago. <laughs> And we still don't have a final debt collection rule. And the irony is, is that industry is like begging for it. They're thirsty for it. They were like, we would love to know like sort of what the rules are. The statute is super old. It was written in the 70s. There's no applicability to modern technology anymore. And they're actually very excited for final rules to actually be in effect. And I think they're, even though, you know, the CFPB has published sort of their fall agenda and the rules on the agenda right now, I think there's a lot of, you know, hand-wringing in industry, very concerned that October is really close to November. Are we going to be able to get this done in time? Because nobody in industry wants to roll back seven years of work and, you know, start fresh. We've gone through Sabrefa. We've gone through the notice process. We've, we've done all the things we're supposed to do. 
Do you guys find any concern there about given sort of the CELA law sort of leaving things up in the air? And now, Paul, I think we're ready to talk about the practical implications of it, right? So the structure has now been deemed unconstitutional. Director Craninger can now be dismissed at any time. She went ahead and ratified certain actions that were taken by the Bureau, but not all actions that were taken by the Bureau. So as a practical matter, where does that leave industry? Are there going to be further challenges? Um, Paul, I'll let you start, but Ling Ling, I'm super curious as to what you think about this as well. Well, I, 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 think, that, uh, I think that there will be future challenges. I think there will be future, uh, future and, and further lawsuits, and we're probably a long way from finish on this, particularly if there's a change in administration and we have a new director. Uh, that will only th- make things more more complicated, I think. Uh, in the interim, I think we're going to have people who make the argument that those actions that were not ratified are, are not viable. And, uh, and I think we'll have plenty of folks who continue to make the argument that the work that the Bureau has done in the past is not uh, legal and that we should continue the challenges. So I think we're a long way from home, unfortunately. And, and I think that's bad both for consumers and for the industry as well. Listeners, you can't see me right now, but I am making a frowny face uh, because the frustrating part of it is that's not good for anybody, right? It's certainly not good for consumers. It's not good for industry, for those, you know, sitting under supervision who just want rules that they can follow to know what they are. Ling Ling, what's your perspective? So um, I, I think that I'm with you. People and industry participants are looking for clarity, and clarity is obviously calming and helpful. From where I sit, I do a fair amount of litigation and enforcement work. And Dara, I don't know about you, but I have been very carefully watching the legal press. Yes. Because it, it, it's unclear whether matters are ongoing. Have they been ratified? Have they not? And so I think that there's that added level of anxiety that will probably play out for the next few months, if not longer. Full Lawyer Employment Act. That's that's sort of <laughs> that's sort of what I call it. And as someone who is one of those lawyers, I shouldn't be complaining about it. I, I generally find it frustrating because it's not. While it may be good for lawyers, uh, it's not good for clients, right? It's it's just it's not it's not good for anyone's clients. And I think any of that sort of those courtroom battles, no matter what either cast a shadow of doubt or undermine the hard work that is being done at the agency by, like you said, very dedicated civil servants who are trying to do their jobs properly. So that part, I mean, that part, I mean, there's not a better word for it than just it sucks, right? Like it just (laughs) really sucks. So let's talk about what we think might happen in the event of an administration change um i think we could all probably agree i won't speak for anyone that there's likely to be a change at the director level maybe some different policy initiatives i'd like to focus a little bit on the office of innovation for a moment because i do think the office of innovation within the bureau is unique and exploring, particularly in the realm of financial services. They're doing a lot of research, uh, gathering a lot of data, and there is certainly been uh, 
talks for years about the potential for a regulatory sandbox, although the Office of Innovation has not taken that direct step yet. So where do you think the Office of Innovation goes? What happens with the Office of Innovation should there be a change in administration? Ling Ling, I'm going to let you tackle this one. Um, Sure. So it might change form, but I think that something along the lines of what currently exists will, will continue to live on. I think that we went from what was Project Catalyst in the early days to what we have now, and I suspect that there will likely be something that tackles new innovation and um, the evolution of the industry in some way, shape, or form. I know that there have consistently been discussions about, well, what does it really mean to have something either have a no-action letter or be a pilot? But I think that 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 general approach will will continue. Um, The question is, how data-driven will it be and how much certainty will it provide for industry participants? So you mentioned how data-driven will the office be, and that's sort of, it's a chicken-egg scenario, right? That begs the question, well, Mm -hmm. it can only be data-driven if it has data to analyze and create policy around, right? Right, right. And I think that there's always that fear, well, what happens if the data is not favorable to the firm that volunteered the data? So, right, that, that's sort of a risk that a firm would have to run, um, which sort of leads me into thoughts and questions about the idea of a regulatory sandbox. Regulatory innovation sandboxes have been established around the world uh, under a variety of different regulatory bodies. Um, There's been a very successful regulatory sandbox in the UK under the FCA, uh, in Singapore and other parts of the world. And there's been a handful of states that that have considered them here in the US, a few that have enacted them, others which have completely rejected them. And the idea, which is sort of just speaks to sort of the fragmented regulatory framework that we have in this country, but there's not been a lot of any real consideration of one at the federal level here. And it seems to me that the only place where one could live, should one live at all, it wouldn't be with, it wouldn't be with the OCC, it would be with, it would be with the Bureau. Now I know, Paul, you've got some opinions about regulatory sandboxes, love to hear them. Sure. And first of all, I, I agree with Ling Ling. I think inno- innovation is here to stay, and the office is very, very likely to uh, to remain. Uh, they've done some very, very interesting work, and I'm sure they will continue to, continue to do interesting work in the future. Uh, there are a couple of ways to look at this. Uh, of course, many people think that, that innovation is important and that providing some sort of certainty uh, or some sort of regulatory regularization for uh, for innovators is is something important on the other side of the coin there is a, a view it may even be the prevailing view that uh, such sandboxes potentially shield companies from the threat of legal liability and in, in the testing of new products and and, and services uh, that's mostly the camp that i fall uh, into because i uh, i fear that this has the possibility to develop into something like blanket immunity or transactional immunity for fintech companies especially. But a lot of it depends on who is the new director. If the new administration chooses a a moderate director and we have a less rocky 
the course than, than we've had in the past. And I think there's probably a way to balance both of those concerns, allow for some innovation, uh, and at the same time, make sure that there's accountability as those sorts of products and services get considered and implemented. So... Unfortunately, the seal of law decision sort of took a little bit of wind out of the sails of another announcement that the Bureau had made, I think just six or seven days prior to uh, SCOTUS's decision being published. And that was their announcement about uh, the CFPB's pilot advisory opinion program, which was wonderful to hear because it hadn't, uh, other than sort of the no action letter program, there hadn't been another forum for um, industries that sat under supervision and enforcement to ask those kinds of questions, not in any sort of organized or formal way. Um, and everyone got real excited about it for five minutes and then seal of law was published and nobody was talking about it anymore. Mm-hmm. So I want to bring it up because as we talk about the notion of a sandbox or within the office of innovation, I struggle to see sort of, is it really a distinction without a difference if the Bureau has taken the step to say we do and are willing to issue sort of advisory opinions about the applicability of certain rules and laws to your business situation, the product that you either either have in the market or might want to bring to market, as long as it doesn't step on the toes of our other fellow prudential regulators, because that's certainly a consideration that the Bureau has. They don't want to offer an opinion that's going to irritate either the OCC or the FDIC or the FCC or anyone else for that matter. I'm sort of struggling to see what sort of the practical difference is, because in my view, if you're going to allow a company to ask the question, here's our product or service that we have. What do you think about the applicability under you know, the alphabet soup of, of statutory framework that we have? Why is that better than allowing that product to actually come to market under the supervision of a sandbox and then actually getting some data about how it works? I'm struggling to understand why that's better, or maybe I'm just sort of missing the point. I'm happy to be corrected. Ling Ling, what do you think? Um, so I think that it's kind of, like you said, a chicken and an egg problem. On the one hand, you want to know what your probability is of being able to launch the product before you invest all of the time and effort to figure out how to build out your product to the point where it gets to a no action letter. On the other hand, so, so, so that makes having the ability to kind of get at least a soft answer first very attractive. On the other hand, I love data. So I think it would be helpful for the Bureau and for the policymaking process to actually have more of a line of sight into product development to the extent that they can. Paul, what do you think? Yeah, I do agree. And in, in some ways, this is something sort of a distinction with, without a difference, right? We, we all know from our experiences, our respective experiences with the Bureau, that, that we've had non-binding opinions. We've had interpretive guidance issued by the Bureau. And, and I think, admittedly, in your opinion, Dara, your, your work with the Bureau has been productive and uh, productive and, and, and positive. 
It has so been. It, and in some ways, I ask myself, okay, if it worked before, why do we need to go this far? If if we do have a if we do have a situation where interpretive guidance can be given, and it has done in the past, I know my experience on the on the Military Lending Act and the final rule implementing it, we issued interpretive guidance that was appreciated and received well by I industry. So why do we need to take the additional step that concerns so many people, particularly if it may, as you know, overstep, trod onto the uh, trod into or onto the, the grounds of jurisdiction of other agencies, or particularly state uh, enforcement agencies or, or consumer protection folks? Uh, if if we have the ability to do the rulemaking process, then uh, and, and something is that unclear, then why not just use rulemaking? So a, a, a few thoughts. Well, rulemaking. So I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge that notion a sure. little bit. Rulemaking is generally done after there is a significant amount of research done. Rulemaking certainly isn't done in a vacuum. You've got a lot of data and research done by profession, amazing professionals like Ling Ling and the people that she worked with in order to support draft rules. I don't know how you do that with a new product or service that has, has not yet come to market. It also takes a really long time. Um, and the thing about technology is that it's moving very, very quickly. You know, when you think about the potential uh, AI um, that is now being used to both in almost every aspect of financial services from consumer facing products and services and virtual customer service to underwriting and, and other types of scoring methodology that's never been done before. I don't know that government's been keeping up with how quickly technology has evolved. And, um, Ling Ling, uh, you look like you're itching. Yeah. Say something. Um, yeah, and I think that rulemaking is a very hard challenge because you're essentially trying to make a rule that covers the entire market, however you define it. And so you're sitting in your office, usually in Washington, trying to figure out, okay, have I thought of all of the exceptions? And you're basing this on observations that exists in the current marketplace, which is a good way to do it. But it's hard to think about all of the innovations that will come. And I, I don't think that this is an issue unique to the Bureau. I think that this holds for all policymakers. And so there's this tension between having completeness and also being able to accommodate innovation. Yeah, so I work with clients who very much want to say, who to raise their hand and say, I have a really good idea. I do not want to mess this up. I do not want to bring a product to market uh, in an uncertain area. I don't want to do it in an unlicensed capacity. I would really like help in trying to bring a new product or offering to a consumer, but I don't want to do it in the shadows. I don't want to accuse of being do it, doing it in a predatory way why won't the regulators help me do that? Why won't they help me do that? And my response is usually something along the lines of, well, there's, there's always resource uh, and capacity issues. You know, it's not, it's not easy to set up a sandbox like they did in the UK under the FCA. 
we do have sort of a unique regulatory structure here in the U.S. So anything that might get done at a federal sandbox, you know, the, you know, the state of California might thumb their nose at and not, not give a hoot about it. I still struggle to say, like, why is that a bad thing? Shouldn't we be encouraging industry and innovators and technologists to raise their hand, not create products in a vacuum and try to work more collaboratively in real time with our regulators so they can see how the sausage is being made? You know, I feel like open kimono is better than closed kimono here. Paul, I'm sort of interested in your thoughts there. True. I, I, I agree with all of those things, and your, and your points are good ones. I think the devil is in the, in the details, though, as to what we offer on, on the back end. Um, if you're exactly right, or maybe it was Ling Ling who made the point, technology is, is complicated, particularly this kind of stuff. And when it comes to financial products and services, consumers generally lack the sophistication to be able to, to keep up with it. And indeed, many governmental uh, or financial regulators may, may be the same way. So I, I think there is room for this. I, I think that the good actors in the uh, industry um, should uh, be able to avail themselves of some regulatory expertise. But at what cost to the consumer? What do we guarantee? If we guarantee something akin to transactional immunity, I think that that obviously becomes uh, an, an issue. So I think the devil is very much in the details. Well, we've got three really smart people uh, on the line here. So maybe this is the dream team, right? Maybe, maybe this is the dream team and we come up with something creative. I've got industry perspective. Ling Ling's a PhD and uh, Professor Cantwell's got, you know, consumer focus in mind. Pie in the sky, but it'd be fun to collaborate on something like that. Maybe some advisory boards like the, uh, like Ling Ling recalls we did have at the Bureau for many years before they were essentially disbanded. But the consumer advisory boards were uh, very good ways for the Bureau leadership to be able to get input from folks in, in various areas of the financial industry. And if I recall, that was disbanded in connection with the leadership change. Indeed it was, yes. Maybe for those who are hoping that the White House turns a different color, maybe something like that will make a reappearance. Um, I had a very good friend who served on that advisory board for, for a number of years. So there's lots of potential good solutions, room for innovation. We're sort of nearing the end of our time, but I'll pose the question to both of you. If there's one thing um, that you'd want to leave our listeners with when it comes to your experience and or the future at the Bureau, now's your chance. Sure. Um, so I think that I had a really positive experience at the Bureau. Um, we were definitely there, I'm going to say in the trenches, but then I realized that Paul was uh, the Associate Director of Service Member Affairs. So I feel I'm not the best qualified to say that, but I was there at the beginning and those were lifelong friendships. And what I hope for the future uh, Bureau going forward is that they pursue a very data-driven and thoughtful process where you have the economists, the policy folks, and the lawyers working together and listening to each other and building on their respective expertise. And I agree with that, uh, Ling Ling. What I, what I would hope for uh, is that the Bureau can be what, what it was intended to be uh, and what it should be, which is the sole federal agency dedicated to protecting consumers. I think it can be a great, it has been, and I think can be a great data-driven uh, organization. 
but I would love to see the consumer protection come back into the Bureau. I, I think that's very, very important for both industry and for consumers, and particularly at times like this, uh, during this pandemic, when so many people have lost their jobs, who have suffered financial hardship. The, the Bureau is uniquely positioned uh, and qualified to be able to provide real consumer protection to, to folks. So I hope, uh, I hope that's where the, the Bureau uh, goes in the future. So I'm going to make a liar out of myself. I said that was going to be the last question, but Paul, you said something that prompts me to ask another one. Sure. Um, you said that you hope consumer protection comes back, which presupposes that you feel that it's left. Is that right? It, 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 it does. Uh, I, I think the number of, uh, there, there's no doubt that the number of enforcement actions has dropped off significantly. I think the abandonment of the Cordray era payday rule uh, is a significant blow to uh, consumers. Uh, and I think it reflects the, the Bureau's current leadership position that consumer protection is not uh, an, an important thing for, for them to be doing. So uh, I think I feel it has left and I think it is absolutely essential that consumer protection return because this is the only federal agency we have that can do it. Uh, and the states, though many try hard, cannot do it alone. All right. So listeners, you heard it. The future of the Bureau still remains a question. CELA law and SCOTUS's opinions uh, aside, the bright minds on, on our show today do not think that the challenges are over. Really quick round robin, just quick answer, yes or no. Do you think we're actually going to get final rules in debt collection or arbitration next quarter? I'll be honest, I, I don't know. What do you think, Paul? I think they'll make a push to try to get them through. So I'll say yes. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode. Thank you, Ling Ling. Thank you, Paul. I think this was a great talk. I hope to have you both back on the show. And uh, until next time, everyone. Bye.